it's a joy and a privilege for me to be with you this evening. I always, uh, as much as uh, there are hard things to talk about at Presbytery, I always look forward uh, to seeing Reverend Wheat and seeing Steve there uh, when I do there. It's always a joy to, to fellowship uh, with people from, from Good Shepherd. So. Um, my sermon tonight will be from the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 11, verse 55 through 1211. And the title of this sermon is Communing with the Son as His Hour Begins. John 11, 55 through 1211, or 1211, yes. Hear now the reading of God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this evening, and we pray that you would condescend to your church, that you would teach us, Lord, that you would open our minds to understand your word, open our ears to hear it, open our eyes to see the glory of Christ in it, and open our hearts, Lord, to believe. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the end of John 11 tells of the plot and the scheme of the Sanhedrin to put Jesus to death. The judicial decision to kill Jesus has officially been made. And the final straw was the raising of Lazarus. We read in 11.53, So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. The growing influence of Jesus over the people has become more and more disturbing to them. They had already sent officers to arrest him in chapter 7, verse 32. 
but it was not his hour yet. And so they gathered together to plan and to plot. And so they made plans to put him to death. And after the raising of Lazarus, they know that they can, they know that they can, they can't just reassess their demeanor towards Jesus. They are fearful because the messianic expectations of the day was so high and at a fever pitch for a political Messiah that this would quickly get out of hand. It could set up an uprising that would bring the wrath of Rome down upon them. They were afraid that Rome will come and take away their place, destroy the temple and the nation. So again, we read in 1153, so from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. Their minds were made up. They're focused now on how and when they should put Jesus to death. They have only a little while to plan. Passover is at hand, and it will mark the last week of Jesus' earthly life. The week of Passover marks the beginning of his hour. He says as much in John twelve twenty seven. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. But in the meantime, for the rest of chapter 11, we are told that Jesus retreats again. He goes to Ephraim, near the wilderness, because he is the wilderness-traversing Messiah. He is the one that was sent to accomplish a second and greater exodus. And he stays there with his disciples until the Passover. It's a town far enough away to be safe, but close enough to be able to attend the Passover that is at hand. But I think the important thing to notice here is that Jesus is with his disciples. And his disciples are with their Lord at the edge of the wilderness. In this wilderness outpost village that scholars don't really know where to locate it because it's so obscure. But it's at the edge of the wilderness. Somewhere in the desert of Judea, they find a place of refuge The disciples have a period of rest with their Lord, resting in Jesus as the dark clouds of his hour comes upon them, resting the disciples in physical communion with the Lord, the Lord enjoying quiet fellowship with his disciples. It's a preview of what is in store for them eschatologically in the new heavens. This rest they are experiencing now with Christ will advance to a deeper level of rest when the Lord is raised and ascends to heaven and the Spirit unites them to the ascended Christ. They will commune with him spiritually, enter into his rest spiritually through his word and sacraments. And it will advance even more at the final resurrection when both glorified body and soul united together to partake of the beatific vision. Beholding God in the face of Christ, in the new heavens and new earth. Experiencing eternal Sabbath rest, eternal joy through worship. But in the meantime, they enjoy their final days with Jesus on earth in Ephraim. With the fruitful one from heaven, the one who exhibits within himself perfectly all the fruit of the Spirit that he is endowed with without measure. It's interesting that Ephraim means fruitfulness. 
And so they're in Ephraim with the fruitful one. Remember, Paul describes the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Jesus is the one who loves his sheep and will lay down his life for them as a reflection of the love that he has for his Father in heaven. He's the one whose joy is found in God, found in the eternal delight of his Father and in the work that he has sent him to do. It's a heavenly joy. He's the peaceful one because he's the Prince of Peace. He's the only mediator between God and man, bringing perfect immutable peace with God to his sheep. He's the patient one. He's the kind one, the good one who alone is the good shepherd. He's the faithful one, the one who John describes in Revelation 1 as the faithful and true witness. He's the gentle one whose yoke is gentle and whose burden is light. He's the one with perfect self-control, tempted in every way, We are, yet without sin. He's your high priest in heaven. And so the disciples, they rest with Jesus in Ephraim. They rest with the fruitful one who will confer his image onto them and thus make them fruitful ones, united to the fruitful wilderness traversing Messiah. And it's interesting that while we don't know where the town Ephraim was, The name comes from the name given to the northern tribes of Israel that were assimilated by the Assyrian Empire in 722 B.C. Ephraim was the name given to the northern kingdom of Israel. And the name, like I mentioned, the name sounds like the Hebrew for making fruitful. And we know, though, that the northern kingdom was anything but fruitful. They were fruitless. They were apostate. And so God judged them. They were assimilated by Assyria, and only the southern kingdom of Judah remained until Babylon came and destroyed them and led them into captivity in 587 B.C. The northern kingdom, Ephraim, was fruitless despite their name. But one is here that represents both Ephraim and Judah, both the northern and southern kingdom. Jesus is true Israel, and he is not fruitless. He is fruitful. He is true Ephraim. And here in this unknown town at the edge of the wilderness, Jesus rests with the fruit of his labor. He rests with those the Father has given to him. He rests with those he has gathered to himself. The church gathered to the Son like fruit. This is what he must die for. The name Ephraim was also given to the second son of Joseph, born in Egypt in Genesis 41, 52. We read the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. God has made Jesus fruitful in the land of his affliction. And now, as his hour arrives, the affliction will be poured upon him, and he will remain faithful He will remain obedient. He will keep those who the Father has given to him. He will enter into death so that his sheep may live. He's the good shepherd. 
who will lead his sheep through the valley of the shadow of death, but he, he will enter into death, not merely walk through its shadow. That's what we get to do because of what he has done for us. And so he will lead us through. He will bring us to that heavenly mountain of rest, face-to-face communion and fellowship with the triune God in the face of the Son. And as we come to our text this evening, we see that all the buzz of Jerusalem is about Jesus, the one who raised Lazarus from the dead, showing forth what he himself will undergo for his sheep. He's the talk of the town. So look with me at verses 55 through 57. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Jesus is known by people who have come to Jerusalem from far and wide, and now as Passover is at hand. Jesus and the disciples, still probably in Ephraim, preparing themselves for this specific Passover that all other Passovers in redemptive history have pointed to. The people come early to purify themselves in case they had contacted some kind of defilement addressed in the law. The appropriate time for purification, according to Numbers 9-6, would take one week. So we see that we are more than likely a week away from Passover. But notice verse 56. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Is that not the most ironic verse? They are gathered in the temple of God, seeking the incarnate God, eager to seek Christ, and he is not there. It's an empty building. What made it a temple in the first place was the fact that God dwelled there as he did in the tabernacle, making the ark within the Holy of Holies his footstool. It's an empty building. The glory of the Lord does not dwell there. The glory of the Lord is in a town called Ephraim, at the edge of the wilderness, and the disciples are with him, basking in his glory. The building is empty because God walks among them in the flesh. The true light had come into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. They seek him, but they will not find him. And there's not a hint of hostility to their words, but neither is there a hint of thoughtful discipleship to Jesus. There is just misplaced enthusiasm. And this becomes more apparent in the triumphal entry beginning in John 12, 12. But one thing is certain. They know that Jesus is a wanted man. And they are held in a spell of fear mixed with curiosity. And the tension has not been greater till now. And as we enter into chapter 12, we, we enter into the Lord's last hour. It's here. And you can hear about this hour since chapter 2 when he tells his mother, my hour has not yet come. 
It has constantly referred to his death on the cross and his exaltation that's bound up with it. And here we are, the last week of Jesus' life on earth. His death and resurrection will happen within this week. His hour has come. With John 12, we have come to a turning point in the gospel. You could take John 12 through John 20, and you can call it the book of Jesus' hour. That week of intensive suffering that leads to the cross. And John sets the context for us here in verses 1 and 2. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave him a dinner. They gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. So six days before Passover, that would make it Saturday evening, which means the next day, Sunday, would be Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. But it's Saturday evening, and this time next Saturday, Jesus will lay dead in a tomb. It's the third Passover that John tells us about. The first was in chapter 2, when John the Baptist was still alive and their ministries overlapped. The second Passover was in chapter 6, with all the Passover illusions of feeding the 5,000, along with the bread of life discourse and talk of his flesh being true food and his blood being true drink. And here in chapter 12, it's the third and last Passover for the period of Jesus' earthly life. It's the Passover which all other Passovers have pointed to. Unlike any Passover that has ever happened, this is the great Passover. This is a truer Passover than the first Passover in Exodus 12. And we see that Jesus is now back in Bethany. He's on his way to Jerusalem. It's at the end of the Jewish Sabbath. It's Jesus' last Sabbath evening on earth. Six more days Jesus will labor. He will do the work the Father has sent him to do. And on the seventh day, on Friday... He will rest. His body will lie in a tomb. And he is in Bethany, less than two miles from Jerusalem, remember. The one who raised Lazarus from the dead is about to go to his own death. The good shepherd will lay down his life for his sheep. The shepherd becomes a sacrificial lamb, a Passover lamb, on the eve of a new exodus when the mediator will deliver his people from death by death. And here he is in Bethany on the Jewish Sabbath, eating dinner, resting. He's resting with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, along with the disciples. And they are enjoying what Sabbath rest points to, are they not? They are doing what proper Sabbath worship directs them to do. All their devotion is focused on the one in their midst as they sit in his presence in this little house in Bethany and they worship Christ face to face. They rest in Christ on the Sabbath when the Sabbath with the Sabbath keeping eternal Son incarnate. It's a picture of heaven. You see it? But not entirely. Two reasons. First of all, this is not yet the raised and ascended Christ. He has so much more in store for them than, that they cannot bear to even imagine the joy of worship in heaven 
with the raised and ascended Christ. He has not yet ascended to the Father. As our confession states, as the God-man, he will sit at the Father's right hand, advance to the highest favor with God the Father, with all the fullness of joy and glory and power over all things in heaven and earth. He will from heaven gather his church, defend his church, subduing our enemies, lavish upon his people and ministers gifts and grace while making continual intercession for them. He will there consummate the Father's plan of redemption and judgment. That hasn't happened yet. But it will. The second reason why this isn't an entire picture of heaven is that there is a devil in their midst. There are no devils in heaven. We'll speak more to that in verse 4. But in the meantime, look at what's happening here. Let's go back to verses 1 and 2. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. You see, all the focus is on Jesus. He's come back to Bethany, two miles from Jerusalem, the place where he raised Lazarus, that place where that final sign caught the attention of the Sanhedrin, and they planned to put him to death. He's in Bethany on his way to Jerusalem, and they're seeking to arrest and kill him. He has entered and is entering into the presence of his enemies. And he does so because he loves his sheep. He's the good shepherd. He's the Passover lamb. And here he is in Bethany, enjoying sweet communion with his sheep, while his sheep enjoy sweet communion with their good shepherd. It's the Sabbath. It's what they were created for as image bearers, created to enter into an eternal Sabbath rest. And so his sheep, they serve him. They prepare a dinner for him. They love him. They want to commune with him. They invite him to their table. And they serve him out of love. The focus is on Jesus. Martha serves him. She doesn't even say a word. But look at what she's doing. She serves the Lord. She need not say anything. Her actions speak louder than words. She serves him because she loves him. And Lazarus is there. The one Jesus raised from the dead. Lazarus is alive, sitting at the table, reclining with his good shepherd. Lazarus doesn't say a word either. But look at his action. He reclines with the Lord at the table because... He loves the Lord. Then there's Mary. Look with me at verse 3. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. She takes this expensive oil, a pound of it, which is a considerable amount. It is described as pure nard, which is a plant from the honeysuckle family and it only grows in the region of the Himalayan mountains between Tibet and India so it comes from a far away remote place which makes it very very expensive and it is the genuine oil it is pure nard and Mary takes this oil 
and she doesn't say a word either. Her action, like that of Martha and Lazarus, speaks volumes. She takes this oil and anoints the feet of her Lord. And the same feet that Isaiah 52, 7 speaks of. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Mary anoints his feet, the feet that carry the good news, the feet that only walk in righteousness. These same feet that John will fall at like a dead man in Revelation 1, 17 through 18, and Jesus will place his right hand on him and say, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. She anoints these feet. And not only does she anoint his feet, she stoops down and wipes his feet with her hair. And she takes that oil that is on Jesus' feet and she takes it to herself. And what was on his feet is now crowning her head. She smells like Jesus now. She, in a way, imitates her Lord. Reminds me of what the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? And she does this because she loves the Lord. It's an anticipation of Jesus himself washing his disciples' feet in chapter 13. It's an act of devotion. It's an act of worship that Mary offers. All of these actions, Martha serving, Lazarus reclining, Mary anointing, are all heartfelt acts of love, devotion, and worship. It's what Christians do on the Sabbath. Yes, it's what Christians will do for an eternity when they enter that Sabbath eternal rest of God. And the fragrance fills the house. The smell surrounds them all. It was just the last chapter that Martha warned Jesus of the smell of death from Lazarus. Remember, he had been dead for four days, but here it is a preview of his death. For it's the same oil that she will anoint him with for the day of his burial. But here she anoints Jesus while he's still alive. In Jesus, even the stench of death is covered up. The stench of death has now given way to the fragrance of eternal life. So they love Jesus. So they serve him. Actions of faith and love, it's worship. And his smell envelops them and fills the room like the glory cloud filled the tabernacle in Moses' day and the temple of Solomon's day. This specific Saturday evening, the Jewish Sabbath, six days from Passover, the temple of God is found in Bethany. But as I said earlier, there's a devil who is among them. There is serpent seed among them. 
So look with me at verses 4 and 5. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? You might have noticed something in Scripture. Serpents speak when they are near the temple. And so Judas speaks, and he sounds very pious. This anointing oil poured out in extravagant devotion to Jesus was worth 300 denarii. One denarii was a day's wage. So this is almost a full year of wages. Either Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were very wealthy, or this was a family heirloom passed down. We don't know. John doesn't tell us. But whatever the background, it was worth an enormous sum of money. And so Judas, in a wolf in sheep's clothing, a hired hand, he attacks Mary. In the room filled with the worship and adoration of the good shepherd, in the room which is filled with the fragrance of love towards the Lord, filled with the beauty of worship, Judas finds himself in a place where he does not belong. And he displays his self-righteous piety. He brings up social activism. He brings up giving the money to the poor in order to mask that he knows nothing or cares anything about worship and adoration. And isn't that often the case, right? Social activism often masks a spirit that knows nothing of worshiping in spirit and in truth. A social gospel is no gospel at all. And Judas Iscariot is there at the table. He's been a pretender for three years. He has pretended to love Jesus. He is identified as a disciple of Christ, a follower of Jesus. But Jesus knows his heart. He mentioned in chapter 6, verse 70, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Judas Iscariot is one of the twelve disciples, and he's a devil. John identifies him as he who was about to betray him. While Martha and Mary and Lazarus love Jesus, while their love overflows here for Jesus, smelling up the room with their fragrance, serving him at the table, reclining with him at the table, Judas, who also sits at the table, hates Jesus. Martha and Lazarus and Mary, they don't say a word, right? Their action speaks of their love for the Lord. Judas, on the other hand, he has no action here. He does nothing. He speaks, and he speaks his father's language, a language of murder and lies. He is repelled by the beautiful acts of devotion being displayed before him, and he can only think of money. This woman just took all her resources, wages for an entire year, and wasted it on Jesus' feet, just poured it out at the feet of Jesus. For Mary, nothing was too much for Jesus. Jesus was worth it all. She loves and adores him. She would give everything for him. And it's an anointing fit for a king. She is his sheep and he is her shepherd. But for Judas, Jesus isn't worth 300 denarii. 
He's not worth much at all. He's only worth 30 pieces of silver. That's nothing. The price that was promised in Exodus 21, 32, it's the reimbursement price of a dead slave who was killed by an ox. 30 pieces of silver. It wasn't much. It's pocket change. To Judas, Jesus isn't worth it. He's not worth giving everything that you have to give. But he would have them believe that he wanted to give the poor a year's wage. But he lies because his father is the father of lies. So John tells us in verse 6, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas is a thief. And Jesus told us about thieves. He told us about the hireling in John 10.10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Judas is a wolf in sheep's clothing who has just attacked one of Jesus' sheep. He questions her act of extravagant love and devotion to the Lord. It's what wolves do. They devour the sheep. But Jesus comes to the defense of his sheep. Look with me at verses 7 and 8. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Notice that only two people speak in this section of scripture. Judas and Jesus. Darkness and light. But the darkness cannot overcome the light. And so the devil doesn't get the last word. Jesus does. And he speaks in defense of his sheep. Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial Jesus loves his sheep he sees and receives their devotion and love for him he receives their worship and he's pleased by it whether Mary knew it or not her anointing the Lord with pure nard was prefiguring his death to her it was a costly act of love and worship but again her actions speak volumes she unintentionally prefigures things that she doesn't yet understand. They love the Lord. He is their shepherd, and they are his sheep. They adore him, so they serve him. They prepare a table before him in the presence of his enemy. And Jesus' cup overflows with the love of the sheep who rest in his presence. It's Psalm 23, played out in the life of the greater David. And he turns to his enemy. He turns to the wolf who desires to devour the sheep. Leave her alone. Jesus rebukes the devil among them. And he interprets her actions. This is for my burial. Such devotion has been poured out to him in this house. Her action has proclaimed her devotion to Jesus. And by pointing to his burial, he proclaims his devotion to his sheep He loves his sheep, and he will enter into death for them. He's the Passover lamb who has come to lay down his life for his sheep. He will walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He goes farther than the shadow. He goes from mere shadow into the horrors of death itself so that you and I will only ever walk in its shadow. He will do that within this week. Next Saturday, he will be dead. Jesus says, For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. 
Jesus' time on earth is, is running short. They will always have opportunity to serve the poor, but not always the opportunity to serve Jesus in this way. The week of his exodus. By their acts of devotion, they are telling Jesus how much they love him. You can't tell a person who is dead that you love them. They won't hear you, but you can tell them while they're alive. And this is what Mary and the others are doing. And as we come to the end of our text, we're reminded of how the sheep of the shepherd will imitate their shepherd. They follow him wherever he goes. They also carry a cross. They also die. They also are raised. They also ascend to where he is, all because they are united to him by faith, spirit-forged faith. Mary smells like Jesus. Lazarus is being sought out so he can be killed like Jesus. It is what it means to be conformed more and more to the image of Christ. It includes cruciformity, the way of the cross. Look with me at verses 9 through 11. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Jesus went to Judea to raise Lazarus, and in doing so, brought about his death warrant. And now, the new life that has been given to Lazarus may cost Lazarus his life. John fifteen eighteen to 19 If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Brothers and sisters, did you know that the world hates you? That America hates you? The world hates you because it first hated him? It's the paradigm for discipleship. Those who follow Jesus must be prepared to suffer and die. Because he is worth giving everything over. Let me conclude our sermon this evening. Brothers and sisters, you see, Martha, Lazarus, and Mary have prepared a table for him because they love him. Jesus knows what has to be done this week. He loves his sheep. And so he will go and he will prepare a table for them. He will go to his last work week to prepare a table for you, a table for me. He will go and he will preach one last sermon. It is finished. He goes to the cross. He goes to pursue them and all his sheep with his goodness and mercy. He goes to finish the work that the Father has sent him to do on behalf of his sheep, to gather them into one body, united them, uniting them by his spirit to his body, and to keep them from all for all eternity, dwelling in the house of the Lord forever, Sabbath rest with the Sabbath Father, with the Sabbath Son, and the Sabbath Spirit. He goes to offer himself as the Passover lamb, a once offering of himself to God, fully satisfying the justice of his Father and purchasing not only reconciliation for us, but an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those who the Father has given to him a kingdom that will never spoil or fade. He goes to prepare a table 
so that we may feast upon true food and true drink. And we do that today as we feast upon the preached word. And when you partake of the Lord's table, you're proclaiming his death until he returns, a crucified and raised and returning Christ. And he goes so that we might go with him, so that we could dwell with him forever in worship. He goes and is now a host of a great feast. The king has gone before us, has laid down his life for us, has been raised from the dead, putting to shame all his and our enemies, including our greatest enemy, death itself. And now he prepares a table for us. He prepares a place for us in his father's house. What a good shepherd he is. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the gospel that concerns your son and the redemption that was accomplished by him and applied to us by your spirit. We thank you, Lord, that you have prepared a table for us that we will sit and feast with Christ, reclining with him at table and worship him and adore him forever and ever. As our shorter catechism says, our chief end is to enjoy him and glorify him forever and ever in worship. Continue to remind us, Lord, of our eschatological Sabbath rest that awaits God's people in Christ Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.